Welcome to another episode of Outside the System. This episode is an interview with Ben Jaffe, a lawyer with a background in music, podcasts, and increasingly, Web3. We talked about intellectual property rights, crypto regulation, getting on the wrong side of the SEC, and how projects can stay on the safe side of the law. We also got into how large companies like Starbucks are entering Web3 and how that'll play out over time. Hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get started. Ben, thanks for joining me today. Hey, pleasure to be here. So this is your first podcast from what you were telling me before, even though you work in podcasts every single day. So maybe maybe we start with that, that the audience should cut you a little bit of slack. Maybe talk a little bit about what you do today. And uh, I mean, it's super interesting how it relates to, to, to both podcasts. And then I think what we're going to probably spend the bulk of the, the episode on is uh, Web3 applications. So yeah, maybe just best to start with your background. And very excited to be here. I am very entrenched in the world of podcasting and have not yet had to act, you know, had the chance to actually do one. And so uh, was very excited when you asked me to, to be on and, and really happy to be here. My background is, is kind of interesting. It's a mix of, of advertising and marketing and music. You know, over the years, as, as my legal career grew and progressed, I really made my way you know, into the intersection of, of where that all converges, which is, which is essentially in digital media. And so, you know, currently my practice is, is this really interesting mix of entertainment, specifically in digital media, so primarily focused in podcasting, but also any other kind of content you, you access from your mobile device, uh, which includes, you know, audiovisual content that you, you know, can access through social media, and then any other kind of original content that you might get from a mobile app or a game or, or a different kind of social network. The other part of the practice is actually working with those kinds of platforms and advising on all aspects of, you know, their business as it pertains to content, which includes, monet, you know, monetizing, developing originals, handling user-generated content matters, um, and the like. And so, you know, it's been really fun because the the background that I've I've had, you know, really gives this strong sense of the business of digital media has really allowed me to kind of get experience in, you know, all of the facets of digital media and, and you know, how content is is created and distributed and monetized and then subsequently turned into uh, different kinds of projects. And so in terms of how we have gotten into Web3, the beauty of being in the world of digital media is that now that's essentially where all emerging tech and content, you know, it, it comes from. And so, you know, we get to really almost shift our practice like every six months because of something new that comes out. And obviously NFTs became a big splash earlier on in the pandemic. And uh, you know, the firm had actually hired, I'll give a shout out to my partner, Sarah Odenkirk, who is, you know, historically an art lawyer and who joined our firm right, you know, when NFTs first started. And, and obviously the first use case was in art. And so our firm really kind of was an early participant in the space as that started to expand. And a lot of our other clients that are more, you know, entertainment based, you know, doing podcasts or, or games or, you know, TV and film started to explore this new tech that just sort of naturally extended into the practice that we had and, and then fell into, into working, you know, with, with some of our clients that were 
dipping their toes. And, uh, you know, it's been, it's been really fun to see the space morph since then. I know when you and I first were, were starting to talk, I mean, one of the things that struck me and, you know, kind of this space is so nascent and just keeps changing all the time is, you know, I've been for this podcast in particular, mostly been talking to people building, building new tools, building solutions, talk to an artist who's using NFTs to, to sort of further her, um, her career. So I've been talking to more practitioners, I would say, like people actually building in the ecosystem. But when you and I first started talking, you know, the legal side of this is so important, but gets overlooked sometimes just in terms of, you know, people are so focused on building. It's sometimes this is something that just, you know, kind of falls by the wayside. And I think, and you, you're certainly much more well qualified to talk about this than me. I think the government has been a little bit slow in terms of understanding and putting together a framework for people to, to actually use. So in, instead of kind of following that framework that, that's non-existent, people end up kind of just doing whatever they want to do. So that is like kind of an introduction. I'd love for you to, to maybe share a little more about how you think about the legal framework in Web3 and you know, kind of take that in whatever direction you want. Obviously, this is a, a totally new you know, venture for everyone. And, you know, between blockchain technology, which just in terms of how that functions in and of itself, and really being essentially a piece of technology for which many existing laws and regulations, you know, never contemplated as being a a way of doing things, you know, as well as just from a practical standpoint, in terms of how people are building, you know, things on top of that, and, trying to to develop a totally nascent space it it really does present a lot of interesting issues and you know look with any kind of new pioneering piece of tech or 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 industry there are always going to be unknowns and risks and from a purest sense you know the the best you can really do is advise clients and and sort of steer clients in a direction where you know, to the extent there are no existing rules, what can they do to obviously comply with what, you know, existing rules are, you know, applicable, but really to sort of set themselves up for the inevitable time when people come and look at this and say, hey, we actually need to enact legislation or regulations and being in the best position possible so that when that time does come, you don't have to completely change your business model or you are maybe being looked at as the model on which they sort of enact rules doesn't require you to to change things. So, you know, from a a regulatory standpoint, you know, obviously the the securities piece comes to mind as, as a big factor. There's a lot out there that, you know, arguably runs afoul of certain securities laws or or could be a risk. Can you take a step back and just, you know, explain what what kind of we're talking about? I think, uh, you know, those who are very familiar with Web3 will, will, I think, be familiar with with the securities issue that that Ben's talking about. But yeah, Ben, maybe just take a step back and just uh, explain that a little bit. Sure. So, I mean, what, you know, whenever you have a company and you are, are seeking investment or offering up an asset of the company to the public in exchange for certain compensation, there are, are things called securities laws, which which are established in the United States and elsewhere around the world that, you know, more or less require you in certain instances to either register, you know, what you are offering or to be exempt from registration. And the real purpose of that 
is essentially to make sure that whoever is engaging in that investment has a real understanding of what they're actually getting into. And so what the risks of this investment are, what the likelihoods of me making money or actually receiving you know, future reward from what I'm paying, it's, it's really meant to prevent situations where I may unknowingly give money to something with an expectation of future value that never comes to fruition and that you know, potentially could really harm my own financial situation or financial future. So wouldn't this be like, I mean, where's the line for any token project? The way I kind of look at it, it, it actually also relates to sort of from a non-security standpoint, you know, what you want your project to be and how you're going about developing whatever you are developing within the world of Web3. And, you know, and that also kind of extends to granting of IP ownership, granting of revenue streams, things like that. So I think in the purest sense, where we sort of see this come up most often is, you know, an NFT project where you want to offer some sort of utility for your NFT that is going to either provide you with a share of revenue from future exploitations of the underlying IP that the issuing company may do in the future. It may be that you are trying to give a portion of ownership away, you know, but again, I think the key distinction is situations where the the issuing company is the one controlling that exploitation versus something more similar to a board ape where you as the holder of that NFT gets to control that exploitation. So, I mean, from a, a security standpoint, that's kind of where you typically see it come up most frequently. And, you know, again, you have a lot of people that are coming into the space that say, oh, I saw board apes or, or crypto punks or, or some of the other larger and more well-known, you know, regenerative projects that have come to the market and they want to sort of mimic what that is. But in a lot of cases, one, they're doing it in a way that that may really be a true risk from a securities perspective, but even more importantly, their project is very different. And, you know, that mold is not going to work for what they are ultimately looking to do, you know, because it's just a different kind of project. So... I think circling back to the first question in terms of from a legal perspective, that that to me actually is is kind of more interesting and and where we kind of get, get to advise and, and really step in and, and steer clients in a certain way is is with a new space, you, you usually have the first to enter the market and then everyone else wants to copy that. Everyone's project is really unique and different and they may have different end goals for what they want from a profit standpoint. They may have different ways in which they are structuring what they are doing. They may have a totally different kind of, of um, piece of content that doesn't lend itself to, to that. And so, you know, kind of really navigating those, those things is, um, you know, to me, it's the most fun part of what we get to advise on and sort of help with. Well, maybe there's two questions that are, I'm about to ask you, so you can take them in whichever direction you want. Uh, the first one being the legal structure the way that the world is kind of set up, it's country by country, right? And the internet and you know blockchain and Web3 aren't sort of... Geography isn't as much of a constraint when it comes... And this is true for the internet too. I wouldn't even just say it's true for, for Web3, but I think it's even more true 
for Web3 than it was for, you know, the previous generation of the internet. You know, one question is sort of how do you help projects navigate that, right? If there's a project that's launching, maybe that's a US-based company or not a US-based company, you know, how do you help them navigate that? And then the second thing is, you know, what's to stop in sort of this world of Web3 and and let's call it like wallets that don't necessarily need, you know, KYC or something. What's to stop companies from just or, or projects from basing themselves in you know, locations that are more friendly for, for crypto or Web3 and then just, you know, operating from there. Like, are there, you know, how do you think about that if a client came to you and was, was saying, hey, why don't we just set up shop in, I don't even know what country would be the most friendly for this, but let's say this country that doesn't really regulate it versus, you know, setting up shop in like New York City. How do projects think about that? Sure. So, I mean, again, I, I think, yes, to a degree, you're you're correct. Obviously, different countries have different rules and regulations and and sort of appetites for enforcing certain things. And so the U.S. being, I think, even within the U.S., though, it's interesting because obviously state by state, I mean, if you look at purely just from a blockchain perspective, right, certain states have very different rules in terms of their attitude towards purely towards blockchain or or crypto or, or things like that. And so, you know, setting up within a certain state um, and kind of how you operate and where you operate, you know, can certainly dictate reporting requirements or registration requirements and things like that. Not necessarily from a securities perspective, but just more, more generally. But from a U.S. perspective, obviously, U.S. securities rules as a whole, I would say, are probably on the on the sort of more onerous or, you know, restrictive in terms of of other countries. And so, certain issuances you may be able to get away with with fully setting up in a different jurisdiction and geofencing who can access uh, what you're issuing, you know, sort of limiting your market and operating in a, in, a, in a different place that may have more lenient rules. To that, though, I will say, you know, one, there's nothing stopping that jurisdiction from changing how it's operating in the future. So, you know, right now, I mean, in the US, sure, Arguably, there's a lot of people doing things that I think run afoul of certain existing securities registration frameworks and things like that. But to date, there's really been very little enforcement and very little willingness from from the government to to sort of issue its position on certain things. And for all we know, that's going to ultimately come out and and they're going to decide to to be really lenient with it in the same way a different country you know, may have historically been really lenient with certain things. And then all of a sudden they take a turn and and come out with a really restrictive position. So I think the risk is still there in certain respects. It may be not as, um, as spelled out to date, but, but obviously you always run that. But I think more importantly, you know, it really comes down to your market and who your audience is. And the US in particular happens to be a very, very big market where a lot of, you know, potential buyers of something are going to really impede the ability of a certain company from scaling if they take the position that they're just going to operate elsewhere. So, you know, that always dictates it. But I think we talked That's about... That's a huge factor. Yeah, yeah but, I, you know, I think we talked about something more from like a tools and uh, sort of like software hardware perspective. You know, the US in certain instances may not have the market that some international territories do. For example, from like a, a Wi-Fi perspective or a sort of cell phone connection perspective, right? A lot of people in the U.S. 
have really easy access to that, uh, whereas in other countries they don't. And so there's different problems that may arise from someone looking to get into this space where bandwidth is a real concern or or fees to get that are, are really different. And so obviously in that case, you know, focusing internationally not only may be helpful in terms of sort of avoiding currently certain securities rules, but also your market just might be there. And so that's a win-win. So it really just kind of depends, you know? That's a great point. Yeah. I listened to, there was a podcast episode I listened to. I'm blanking on the guy's name, but the the podcast itself was uh, the Bitcoin Standard podcast. And basically the point the guy was making, the podcast was about lightning basically, which I don't know if you're familiar with. It's the instant payments L2 of Bitcoin the guy who was on the podcast was bringing, he's from Africa. And the point he was making was, you know, banking infrastructure is nowhere close to what it is in the West and in Africa. The banking sort of infrastructure is nowhere close to what it is in in the US. And then the other thing that's sort of the enabling factor, which is kind of what you're talking about with the the Wi-Fi and the internet connectivity, they have the, the internet connectivity on mobile. And he said, we kind of leapfrogged the whole computer generation. The computers are not really... And this is kind of true in other places as well. I think this is is pretty true in India also, where it's like everybody has a mobile phone, but not everybody has a computer. You know, very, you know, percentage-wise, very few people actually have computers on a percentage base. I mean, these are huge populations, so it's not that nobody has computers, but everybody has a mobile phone. And so, you know, technology that's kind of mobile first and, and enables payments from a mobile first perspective at very low fees actually is very interesting in these countries versus a country like the US. As an example, I'm not saying lightning can't work in the US for anyone listening, but it is just a different order of magnitude in terms of value because there are alternatives, right? In the US, there's like competitors, whereas the alternative in some of these other places is cash. So it's like a very different value proposition. So yeah, you're totally right. Like it's a it's a multitude of of factors for where to operate and how to set up and you know, I'm sure you probably get this question from from clients too, but you know, in terms of the call it the regulatory appetite or clarity, maybe, do you see that improving, you know, kind of over time? And improving doesn't necessarily mean like making it easier to operate, but at least the rules becoming a little bit more clear. And just to give you some context, so in my my day job, I end up doing a lot of sort of corporate conversations as it relates to innovation and the issue with Web3 has always been in those conversations, hey, we don't really know how this works and it doesn't seem like it's that clear. So it's like there's a lot of folks sitting on the sidelines who maybe would be interested if there was more clarity. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a super interesting question and, and I think also a really good point and something that we definitely discuss a lot because, you know, again, right now, it can be very difficult to advise a client in certain things because the answer is that nobody knows. And, you know, our job, first and foremost, I think, is to really at least let clients know what the risk of doing something is. And, you know, within certain frameworks, this this sort of can be different in terms of the degree of it. You know, at the end of the day, the the client's risk appetite is what it is. And and as long as they are sort of made aware of those risks and, and fully understand what they're walking into, you know, a, a lot of times it's it's really still their decision to to make. And, you know, so right now I think there's a large degree of, you know, sort of hedging in the sense of like, look, you may be able to do this and 
you know, there's ways we could look at in terms of structuring it that would mitigate that risk as much as possible. But at the end of the day, the risk is still there until, you know, some of that clarity comes about. You know, I do think over time, we will get that clarity. And I actually think regardless of whether it comes out as being more or less restrictive than people were either hoping or expecting, I think it's going to be a really good thing for for the the industry and the space and will actually end up leapfrogging you know the growth because there are so many people including like big institutional money that that is still sitting in the sidelines because of the unknown and I've actually been a little surprised at how sort of little has come out <laughs> in terms of of regulations and and different kinds of things to date because obviously you know, every day, if you really are, are active in the space and see it, I mean, there are so many different kinds of lawsuits and infringement cases and just people that are doing things that candidly are, are burning people in, in a bad way. It's been a little surprising that there hasn't been more. But, you know, I, I do think over time that's going to just build and build and there's going to be enough sort of pressure from, you know, a combination of big, big institutional players wanting to get in and kind of lobbying for for this and pushing it, but then also just enough, you know, sort of lawsuits and different things that have resulted in, in people getting hurt that they're, you know, that things will just end up coming down. And, and when it does, you know, like I said, I, I think it's actually going to be a really good thing for, for the space. And, um, you know, kind of circling back to what I said earlier, the, the more you can kind of position yourself to be the model, then hopefully when those regulations and rules come down, people see, oh, hey, this is working really well. Let's you know, let's steer in this direction because this person's doing it and it's actually making people money and it's and it's not hurting people and it's it's being, you know, successful in these areas and and let's, you know, that's what we're gonna adopt. The making money or being more friendly to towards these companies or, or more restrictive towards these companies or these groups is I actually think secondary to there being just some clarity. Like clarity would be also like, hey, we're not going to touch this. Go do whatever, you know, states can deal with it. Like you can do whatever you want. It's almost like marijuana laws. <laughs> not like, I'm, you know, I'm certainly no expert in that, but it feel, as far as I understand, that's kind of seems to be the federal government's approach. And they're just like, hey, we're not really enforcing this at the moment. So that's clarity in some way. And you do see, you know, this whole industry that has arisen around sort of state-based cannabis companies. And so I think that's, you know, that's one approach. Another ap- approach would be like, hey, we're going to make this, you know, every token is a security and, you know, you have to register with the SEC. Like there's all these, you know, all these things that now come with it. And that's clarity. You know, it's more restrictive, but that is clarity as well. And people can at least know the rules before they dive in. I think we're in this weird murky area right now where to your point, it's like nobody knows. Well, and that is probably the right answer. And you just have to, you know, kind of do your best and but it's kind of guesswork for everybody at this point. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and look, I mean, I think um, what what we have kind of found is from a pure utility perspective, you know, a lot of people initially feel like the only way they can do it, you know, meaningfully is by giving up ownership or by giving a revenue share participation or things like that. And, you know, what I actually have found is that there's there's actually a lot of other ways to give utility that, in my opinion, are potentially more meaningful and do a better job of yeah, like engaging your community and really making them feel like they're a part of what you're building and that are actually, even in existing known sort of rules and regulations, totally clear of, of some of those pitfalls. 
Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's maybe some examples would be would be super helpful. I know we've so previously on this podcast, we did an episode with Chris Cheney from Fancurve, which is doing they're doing NFTs, but they're not doing any kind of like rev share ownership type of NFT. It's more like a fan club type NFT with soccer teams in Europe. So they have a couple of Premier League teams, a couple of La Liga teams, I believe a couple German teams as well. Uh, nothing in the US at the moment, but with the, you know, you buy the NFT and you get special rights at the stadium. You know, you get to go into like a certain club. There's some meet and greets with players. You know, you get a chance to win like, or not even a chance to win. I think you get an opportunity to interact with players online in like some kind of chat room type scenario. So there's like a bunch of benefits, right, that you get, but none of those are tied to ownership or rev share of the, the team. So that's maybe one example of what you're talking about. But yeah, we'd love to hear. I mean, it, well, first, is that even an example of what you're talking about? And second, are there other projects that you've seen that are doing a good job with? So there are nuances to this, but I sort of tend to put projects in kind of two buckets. One is sort of like your initial traditional bucket of, hey, we're really just making a piece of art um, or whatever the digital asset is, if it's not art. And the goal is just to kind of mint these and issue these. And it's not tied to another piece of IP that we are separately developing. And we're going to sort of make money through, you know, primary and secondary, you know, sales of the actual NFT itself. But we're going to allow our community and our owners to sort of own certain rights and do certain things that they want with them and, and benefit from that. So that's kind of the Yuga Labs model with all the crypto punks and, and board apes and that kind of thing. The other category, which from my personal practice, I deal with more are, you know, the companies that are building a certain piece of intellectual property, you know, or, or an underlying piece of content. And that could be a video game, that could be a comic book series, that could be a TV show or a podcast or something, you know, that's that's sort of there already in concrete that they're developing. And they are trying to use NFTs as a way of, you know, sort of driving interest in what they're building, building a community around that, obviously promoting it and marketing it, and sort of leveraging the fan base. And so those are two very different kinds of, of models that really require you to take very different considerations in terms of how you want to structure, you know, your terms and what kind of rights you want to give away and what are the implications of that. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Fancurve is certainly a good example. I actually, you know, spoke with Chris and, and I know you made an introduction to us and what they're doing is really interesting, you know, and certainly from a, a brand perspective, you know, that's definitely one way to, to add value. But one I just, I think, recently came across, which I actually think they're doing it really well, is, is uh, have you heard of the Stoner Cats project? I think it's actually uh, Mila Kunis's company, or she's somehow involved, but it's essentially a, a series of um, digital, you know, short videos involving stoned cats. And, you know, you have to own an NFT to, to access that and to watch that video. But in addition, you are getting to participate in development meetings and, and concepts. There's access to certain merch that they might be developing. It's just a, a really interesting way of structuring it where you have, you know, obviously initial dedicated fan base, right? Because someone's buying this NFT because they want to access this piece of content. You know, by owning it, 
not only are you getting to sort of participate in that, you know, viewership club, but we're involving the community by letting them know, hey, we're working on developing this. Like, what do you think of these ideas? We're going to host meetings that you get to participate in. You know, we may develop merch that we're going to allow you to exclusively have access to purchase or maybe even just give it give it away as a perk. So, you know, all of these kinds of things are are really interesting and they don't involve splitting up ownership of the IP or promising future revenue from the movie of this project that may come out, you know, down the line. And so, you know, it's it's really kind of a, almost like a different way of 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 having like a, a fan club, to be honest. And you're seeing that with a lot of musicians are doing this where they're issuing certain NFTs and, and that's going to be tied to access to certain VIP tickets for a live event that they're doing or a concert. You may get certain VIP, you know, package perks if you own an NFT with meet and greets or different kinds of things. And so, you know, again, these are all different ways of, you know, providing value giving the the holders and your community a sense of of being like an actual active participant in what's being built and developed and having a part of that but you're not necessarily doing it in a way that's risking securities or to be honest more importantly just splitting up the ip in a way that actually really harms your ability to exploit it down the line because you know what a lot of people don't necessarily think of initially is hey if you're going to give up ownership rights and if you look at the um, the new set of terms that just came out for CryptoPunks that, that Yuga Labs issued, I mean, they it's interesting because they try to address this in certain ways, but then, you know, it always comes back to the question of like, well, how are you actually going to enforce this, right? So if you're giving up ownership in IP, you know, obviously that has certain benefits. There are certainly cases in which that is a model that might work and, and it helps you know, drive interest in your NFT and, and build stuff up and, and all that stuff. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, other pieces you have to consider. I mean, one, if you're developing a piece of content and then using NFTs as a way of, you know, marketing that or building your community and you give up ownership rights, you're going to have potentially a really difficult time exploiting that IP in the future in other ways. Because if you're trying to turn that you know, self-funded TV show into a movie and you are going to a traditional buyer in the current marketplace, you know, they oftentimes may want a full suite of rights. And if you can't grant that, you know, let's say you have a, a video game that you're developing and you're issuing a bunch of NFTs to your community around different characters, and things like that, and you're giving up ownership. Well, guess what? You know, you run the risk of, um, you spending a million dollars over six months to develop a brand new character or a brand new story arc. And a week before you, you know, decide to release this, one of your fans who had the rights to do it has secretly been working on this and releases it previously. And now you have two conflicting, you know, storylines or, or it totally undercuts that new thing. And, and now you've just wasted a million bucks on something that, you know, you thought you'd have, exclusive rights to do it, or you'd be first to market, and that's now being harmed. You know, you have quality control issues where, you know, you may give rights to someone and, uh, you know, they develop something and it's really totally off brand or inappropriate or, you know, just done in a way that, you know. So recently, I don't know if you've followed this, but in the last couple of weeks, 
a Starbucks released, you know, their plans for for NFT and Web3. I, I don't think they're doing obviously any kind of profit sharing or anything. It's kind of the super fan club from from what I understand, which is interesting because I think to your point, they're steering fan curve is doing the same thing. You know, they're steering towards the the safe side of what you can use NFTs for, where it's like, sure, even if the space does get more tightly regulated or there is more clarity around this, that super fan club idea is 99.999% safe. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to come after that. It's more when you're you know, promising future revenue or ownership where things get a little trickier. So yeah, I guess, I mean, to the point of what we were talking about earlier with clarity, you know, more corporations can kind of get involved or, or larger companies can get involved. I mean, I think the Starbucks thing is a really interesting precedent for showing how you can get involved in a relatively safe manner. You know, I don't, I don't see them having a lot of problems with how they've... they've Do you know in terms of what kind of utility they're you know, attaching to the NFTs? They've launched an NFT-based loyalty program. This was from eight days ago, this article. It says the integration is called Starbucks Odyssey, allows those participating in the loyalty program referred to as Starbucks Rewards, as well as employees to earn and purchase special blockchain tokens. Each is designed to unlock digital, physical, and experiential benefits that are uniquely Starbucks. These benefits range from virtual coffee mixology classes, access to special merchandise, event invites at reserve roasteries, and even trips to the brand's Costa Rica coffee farm. So it's going to be tacked on top of their existing rewards program is what it says. And you either can earn them for doing completing certain journeys, basically like a set of activities, or there's also the ability for certain types of NFTs to right. purchase them. To be honest, that's where I see specifically for NFTs, because I know obviously Web3 encompasses a lot more than that. But, you know, specifically for NFTs, I mean, that's really where I see the industry headed. I mean, it's it's kind of like a fancy way of saying a fan club. Yeah. The, the one thing that I do like see as a very easy, logical next step, somebody's probably working on this that I don't know of. But if, if someone's listening to this and you are working on it or you know someone working on it, definitely send them my way because I'd love to, to chat with them on the show. You know, all of, having all of these sort of fan clubs in NFT form could make for a really interesting like digital wallet where when you just go to a site, you know, or open up an app, you automatically are sort of granted special access. Like you don't have to log in specially. You don't have to use a different sort of uh, way of accessing these rights. It's like kind of something that works in the background and it's just like, hey, this person has, you know, these three NFTs in their wallet. So they have access to this special privilege. Like sort of making that very seamless is a potentially really cool application of all these NFTs because it, it could be, you know, the alternative sort of worst future is every single one of these brands kind of does their own NFT launch. And then it's just like another thing you have to log into. It's a great point. And I think right now, you know, you have sort of, uh, we're at the stage within the space where there's great ideas and there's great ways in which you can kind of develop things and give utility to the NFTs and, and really drive value to your holders and your community. And then there's kind of running up against the reality of what existing technology is for actually implementing that. And like, you know, particularly in the live event piece of it, I'm sure you've experienced this, you know, yourself, but, you know, if you go to a conference or, or an event and you have to be a holder in order to access that event or to get, you know, your free drinks wristband or whatever it might be, 
you know, right now it's, it's candidly kind of a pain. I mean, you have to have one, you, you have to have a wallet and whatever they're, you know, sort of issuing, whatever platform they're doing it through, obviously it has to be compatible with the wallet you have, or you might have to download another one, whatever, right? So that part of it's annoying. But, you know, right now it's like a three or four step process where you have to get a code from your email and you have to input that into this and you, you have to verify it. And, you know, it's kind of a pain to do. And what's been certainly one of the more interesting things that I at least saw a couple months ago at the NFT NYC conference was there are a lot of people thinking about this. And from like a tools and product standpoint, you know, how are we going to implement new tech that's going to make this world more seamless? And I think over time, you're going to see that. And look, I mean, broader Web3 will encompass metaverse and things like that into that. You know, I mean, right now it's the same. There's a big interoperability issue, you know, both in terms of joining like the virtual and the physical worlds together in a way that makes it easy. And then even in the virtual worlds, you know, making it so that whatever you own can be accessed regardless of like which platform you're, you know, you're entering the the metaverse through and, and where you're going and what accounts you have. And so I think over time, you know, as that I'm sure is being looked at by a lot of people and, and those tools get developed, you know, that will hopefully further lead to, to increased adoption and, and, you know, the ability to just, you know, have that work. Yeah. And for anybody who thinks, uh, you know, this is, I'm sure you don't think this, Ben, but anybody who thinks like, yeah, you know, these fan clubs, they're like a small, you know, very small market, like no one's, you know, who's actually going to join a fan club. Maybe this is embarrassing to some people. I'm not embarrassed at all about it. I am, I grew up a Green Bay Packers fan last year. They did a share sale. And the shares grant you absolutely no rights besides the ability to go to the shareholders meeting and vote on the board of directors. You don't get discounted tickets. You don't get anything. You get some special access to merch. And it was $300 a share. And, you know, I, along with any of my friends who are Packers fans, all bought shares. I mean, I think there's like 100,000 plus Green Bay Packers shareholders. To be fair, the Packers did not do this as an NFT. I think that's probably, you know, what they do them every share sales. I forget how many they've done in the past decade, maybe two. And then, you know, before that, it was kind of like once a decade because they do them on a because the team is technically a nonprofit. But they because of that, they don't have any funds to, you know, if they have to make a stadium upgrade or something like that, they have to kind of go for outside capital for that. And that outside capital is always a share sale. So they don't do them often. And maybe the next one, you know, if the next one's in like eight years or something, I could see them doing that maybe as an NFT. Sure. That'd be super cool. (laughs) When you're just starting out or you are a much smaller enterprise and you do have this loyal, you know, fan base or community or you're building that in a meaningful way, you know, look, a lot of times, you know, smaller enterprises, you know, they need capital. And one really positive thing about the the world of NFTs from my perspective is, is a way to potentially raise, you know, money to do things that you want to grow your your business, but in a way that again is like everyone wins, right? So you're gonna, you know, issue an NFT if that is successful and that drop, you know, goes well and 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 sells. And you do it again in a way where you're adding, you know, utility and your fans and your community are are buying in and getting meaningful perks for being, you know, part of it you know, they're winning from that. You guys, you know, as the, as the enterprise sort of win, because you are getting certain capital that, 
you know, allows you to do things to grow without having to go out and get independent financing and, and give up equity and, and other kinds of things. And um, that obviously is, is a huge plus, you know, that I think is one of the, the real positives that are coming out of, out of this. So, okay. So as we, as we kind of wrap up, so a lot of listeners of this podcast, because of the previous episodes, are builders themselves. They're working on some kind of project, many times in Web3. You know, if somebody like that is listening, wants to talk to you more, what's the best way to, to get a hold of you? My firm website, which is um, cdas.com, C-D-A-S.com. You know, my profile page on, is on there. And um, we actually just revamped our site. So is a, a nice and updated sort of description of, of my overall practice and, and a way of contacting me through that. And then my LinkedIn page is, is also where I'm pretty, pretty active. And uh, yeah, those are, are probably the two, the two places to, to find me and, and see what I'm up to. Yeah. And what's the best stage of a project to get in touch with you? Is this something that, you know, if they are just starting off, it's, a, it's appropriate to talk to you? Or, you know, or is it, do they have to launch something first? Like, what's the, the right stage where a project should be, you know, trying to, to speak with someone like you who can help them navigate, you know, this, this pretty complex landscape? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think it really depends on, on what the project is and, and what the company or the person is looking to do. Obviously, if you are just launching, you know, there are a lot of legal things that you need. I mean, you, you need, if you have a site and you're doing a, you know, mint through your site, you need terms of service, you need privacy policies, you may want to trademark your brand or whatever product you're, you know, you're developing. You may want advice on actually how to structure this and what kind of rights to give away or not. If you're partnering with others that are helping you create the content, you know, keep in mind all of the same rules when it comes to third party IP and content and, and licensing needs and, you know, making sure you're not, you know, taking something that's out there and, and using it in an infringing manner without a proper license. I mean, all of that stuff you do need lawyers for. And so I guess the answer would be to coming, you know, come to us, you know, at, at that early stage to make sure you're, you know, putting together everything properly and, and have all your, you know, stuff together for when you are going to market. In another context, if you're, let's say, exploring a brand partnership or something like that, you know, we may not be needed until you actually have, you know, that partner identified and have started working through what that relationship might look like and are sort of ready to then, you know, paper something or, or whatever, in which case we may not be needed until, you know, that stage, unless you also need help, you know, with, with how to structure it in the first place. So, yeah, it just kind of depends. But I, I think... Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, overlook or, or don't realize that, you know, there's a lot that goes into, you know, structuring this and, and sort of making sure you're protected, you know, both from a brand perspective, but also just from, again, like a terms of service perspective and, and a IP ownership perspective and, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think it's important because the risks of, of doing it the wrong way can be really significant. All right. Well, thank you, Ben, for, for joining. This was amazing and uh, hopefully helped uh, a lot of the builders out there who are trying to you know, navigate all this while trying to bring a nascent technology to market. So really appreciate you coming on. Thanks again, Ben.